Hello and welcome to the second edition of Hidden in Plain Sight. I'm Eric Ryder, your host. I really appreciate all the folks that had checked out the first episode of the show with Michael Brandon. That is still available, of course, if you didn't catch it. Today, our first musician on the show, which is cool because, of course, this podcast is really about music and about shedding light on musical artists who didn't get quite the attention that I think they deserve. That's why it's called Hidden in Plain Sight. They're still out there. They're still putting out great work. But, you know, somehow the world (laughs) has turned a scant eye to uh, the great stuff that they're doing. And that is criminal in my book, and uh, we need to change that, which is what the podcast is all about, of course. Uh, So today, very special edition, we've got part one of a three-part interview that I did with Rollo McGinty from The Wooden Tops. If you don't know The Wooden Tops, please check them out. Great, great stuff uh, incorporating indie music, funk music, pop music, in a way that's entirely their own. You really can't say that the wooden tops sound like anybody else. One of the classic artists on the Rough Trade label in the UK, they actually got their start on the food label that later had massive success with the band Blur. Uh, So they really had the the musical and uh, indie pedigree to become big stars. And they were very popular in the 80s, in the UK, but that didn't translate all that well to the United States, unfortunately. Although, you know, their debut album, Giant, did pretty well here and was put out by Columbia Records, as well as their second album, Wooden Foot Cops on the Highway, which I mangle it as I <laughs> talk to Rollo about that record. I mangled the title several times, so fun drinking game will be to take a sip uh, every time I screw up wooden foot cops on the highway. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this interview. This uh, first part, we talk about his beginnings as a musician, working with everybody uh, from the Liverpool scene, including the Wild Swans, the Teardrop Explodes, and uh, the, the Jazz Butcher. Uh, lots of good stuff in there about his early days. And then we move on to talking about the early singles, uh, the John Peel sessions that they did, and then the making of Giant, their debut record. And then in part two, we move on from there and uh, talk about the rest of the Wooden Top's career and uh, part three as well. So you definitely won't want to miss those. Those are coming in a couple weeks Uh, for part two and a couple weeks after that for part three. And I should point out this, this interview uh, was uh, about three. We we talked for about four hours, which is why this is a three parter. We did the interview in uh, Rolo's partner's cafe in a section of London. And you can hear the uh, the cafe sounds in the background. You can hear the traffic outside. One point, a police car goes by with the sirens going. So, you know, uh, this wasn't studio conditions, but I'm very thankful to, to Rolo and to his girlfriend for allowing me their time and allowing me to... Uh, use their space to record this interview and and very thankful to Rollo that uh, he is a very easy interview 
I I barely had to prompt him to get amazing stories out of the man. I do hope you check out the Wooden Tops and the amazing records that we're talking about in these next three parts. I'm going to put together a playlist on YouTube of Wooden Top songs that we talk about during the interview. And uh, I hope you will check that out. I'll link those in the description of the podcast. Without further ado, I take you now to London in December where I sat down with Rollo McGinty. Hello, Rolo. Thank you so much uh, for doing this. We really appreciate you taking the time. The idea behind this podcast is to uh, give exposure to folks that I feel like are amazing artists, amazing musicians, but for whatever reason, never got the attention that they deserve. Um, well, I think we should curtail this interview right now. Right? <laughs> Hopefully that's not offensive. <laughs> too, too much flattery, you know. No, no, it's that bit about not getting the attention that you said. I've got a lot of attention in, uh, over the years. I think I'll probably have more attention than anyone deserves. And um, uh, and I, I think I've been really lucky because yeah. I think I've got it for, like, a sort of, you know, as we were discussing earlier, like radio-friendly music, but also like really kind of uh, alternative experimental music uh, mm-hmm. madly gnashing drum beats uh, on stage nudity um, <laughs> uh, just as, as far as I can push every single envelope I, 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 I realise now yeah. years later that I've been lucky enough to do that well when I say the coverage or attention that you deserve I'm speaking from an, an American perspective but being a Wooden Tops fan for you know since i was a teenager we really didn't get you know the coverage of you guys that i hoped for we didn't you know they didn't play records on the radio mtv was virtually non-existent with the the videos um you know uh, so it's actually amazing now with the internet age to be able to go seek that stuff out and have it at your fingertips because um i've been like an alternative music fan for a long long time you know, even those uh, outlets that covered alternative music, like the Wooden Tops, would get some attention, but just not, you know, like the coverage that uh, a band like R.E.M., say, would get. And I feel like, from from my taste, you guys were at least as good as an R.E.M., Morris Smith's, or something like that. You know, the, the kind of bands that got attention in the alternative world. Um, so that's all I'm saying. What, what well, I say. yeah, okay, I'm, 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 I'll get that. Yeah. yeah, thank you. But you know, I like very much the alternative world of American music. You know, right from right from you know the first discovery of uh, like Frank Zappa or, or you know Silver Apple. Or, uh-huh. You know, there's just so much uh, you know, Parliament. You know, there's just American music as well. Yeah. It's what has made everything here tick. Even even if you know we have sold it back to America. I mean, the, yeah. the Beatles being you know uh, like a classic example of a, a band that came from appreciation of American music and mm-hmm. sold it back. Um, and you know, there's like 
you know a couple of a couple of records for me um, later on from actually Wooden Tops of the way I have been able to sort of accidentally done that but I think the Wooden Tops was actually as they say a quintessentially English thing mm. uh, and um, you know I think I think my voice is particularly uh, English but actually you know my hero uh, probably my biggest hero that made me want to sing uh, is probably Alan Vega which is which is from Suicide oh yeah yeah an American artist you know I, as, as a teenager for me it would have been like that Black Sabbath and hmm. you know Sid Barrett's Pink Floyd and uh, all of those kind of things and uh, you know Deep Purple I was kind of without realising that I was kind of rooted in, in English rock yeah. well I know then you know that's the blues and all of that that's the blues in Black Sabbath doesn't really isn't something I really understood. Right. Uh, but, you know, James Brown, for example, is like a, a very American thing. And, yeah. and James Brown, for me, it's like James Brown and, and, and suicide, and I suppose a little bit like some like Iggy Pop and, hmm. and, and stuff like that were, were yeah. things for me. Uh, but um, All great music, but, you know, when I listen to Water Tops records, I wouldn't put any of those. Uh, in my mind, as an influence on those records, you know. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe. But I mean, um, I think I think my initial idea of what what I th- what I wanted to sing like when I because I didn't really know that I could sing. Yeah. So I think probably I was channeling more of Alan Vega than anybody else, and wow. you know, if you know, uh, whoops and yells and you know, songs like Well, Well, Well is particularly. Uh, Alan Vega, uh, in a way, hmm. uh, but you know he had the Elvis thing, so he was, right. he was coming from that. So uh, and, and a little bit like that through Alan had come to me, but I, I actually tell up, but I actually didn't really like Elvis right. at all. That was just like it was like another Christmas record, you know, because uh, the age that you are really kind of uh, influences how you um, how you see things. Uh, like you wouldn't want to like that because people older than you like it, so you don't like it. But so I had a problem with the Beatles because everybody older than me liked the Beatles. So right. I hate the Beatles because you know somebody's older brother liked the Beatles, and, mm. you know. So you you want to you want to you want to you know have your own bubble, you know. Yeah. So for me, it was more um, yeah, it was more you know, Sid Barrett's Pink Floyd when, when I the first things that I bought. Would have been uh, relics by Pink Floyd. It was only ten shillings, fifty pence, when I was a boy. And also another album of the Fast tapes was also a really cheap, and uh, uh, yeah, fifty p. So, so you bought these records and you put them on, and they absolutely just kind of opened the door to another world, a world of experimentation, psychedelia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they still had. Um, something functional about them, you know, like the beats and guitars. Um, and, and I just remember Sex Machine by James Brown was mm-hmm. just, just really like an amazing, weird thing that all fell together and like right. the body movement, the way the way that his performance was uh, was really good for me. 
when you talk about like James Brown and stuff, it's like, as I think about it, I can hear some of that energy, I guess, that got translated into more, more of an indie sound, if you'll forgive that term, um, with the, with the wooden top stuff. But yeah. you, but I, th- I think actually the energy of the original wooden tops, uh, it was probably just pure terror. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just suddenly finding yourself in front of an audience and 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 it just being really geared up by the experience of that and suddenly playing everything twice as fast uh-huh. and then noticing that the faster you played it and the more energetic you played it, the more it went down well. But at the same mm-hmm. time, it felt right for you as well. And I still have a problem not being able to play anything slowly. You know, I, I still do. They, they tell me off all the time. So. Too fast, like that. <laughs> <laughs> because I know I know that it's been a kick off. Yeah, I just wanted a kick off. I just wanted it to be really good fun. For, mm-hmm. You know, especially people pay money to come and see. You know, they pay the ticket price is so expensive now that I'd like to think they really get their money's worth. You know, right? They can hardly walk. Or you can pack in more songs that way too. Well, yeah, you can get the entire catalog, <laughs> but it's not really that. Actually, no, you just make them go. You you, you just make them go on longer. Right. Right. So you play the same amount of songs, but you extend them so so that the, the beat really bites and it gets right to the back of the hall and and it's not you know it's 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 a special event for that particular night. It, mm-hmm. It's it's only ever going to be that way once. You might you might kind of let it roll the next night, but it somehow won't be the same as the night before. So uh, it makes everything kind of. Uh, uh, a special event and, and if we don't do that we're actually disappointed mm. we, we kind of feel like we blew it because because either either we did a better job the night before or it just somehow didn't really gel or even now we, we still have arguments after, after concerts about you know why it wasn't good enough mm. so before the wooden tops it's usually me I usually get the blender. <laughs> but so I, I want to start from the beginning you started out as a bass player and you actually played with um, the Wild Swans early on um, and I know you're still friends with Paul Simpson which is fantastic after all these years and, and they put out you know great records but yeah, he's sounded really good yeah I think he, he he went somewhere and he got some kind of like tropical illness in it took a few years out of his life and he's back and he sounds good and you know I mean I really enjoyed working with him I, I liked his voice I loved I just loved being with him and, and, and those guys uh, and um, it was my choice to leave because it was a bit too much going from London to Liverpool all the time yeah. but that doesn't in any way change my feeling about how much I enjoyed being with right. them. Did, were you on any of those early recordings that they did? I'm on uh, Revolutionary Spirit oh, wow. and uh, yeah, the B side and the A side and um, yeah. there's the beautiful thing is that Peter Freitas no longer with us and I was yeah. uh, drummer um, for the Bunny Yeah, band I'm unfortunately uh, the last person to see him alive. I gave him a hug wow. and said goodbye and waved and off he went on his motorbike and he never wow. arrived where he was going. <sighs> it was just a chance thing that can happen to anybody on the road which is somebody just turns in front of you. Sure. So if you're going quite fast on a motorbike on the outside lane and somebody just swings out, that's it. Yeah. And that's what happened to Pete. And uh, but it is his brother Frank who is the bass player. 
rooftops. And uh, so, yeah, Pete played bass. Sorry, Pete played drums and he put up a nice shoot on it. Yeah, Pete, thank you. Pete played the drums on uh, Revolutionary Spirit. And, um, you know, I knew, knew they had the same last name, but I never made that connection. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a whole load of them actually. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so early days. So, would uh, Wild Swans been a, would have been the first musical project you were involved with, or no, no. Um, actually, the first musical project I was involved with was at school. Um, there was a tall, lanky chap who was really good fun, who had really good taste in music. Uh, who was like maybe a year, two years older than me, who, who I kind of quite looked up to because I loved his record collection and he was nice. And his name is Patrick, and um, he is now the jazz butcher. So he and I were at school together. And okay. Played, yeah, 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 yeah. And he and I uh, played together at school, and it's really weird because there was two bands at school, and uh, one of them was he and I. Mm-hmm. And, then, and some other fans, and then uh, the other one uh, was a, a kid called Simon, who was extremely good-looking. And the first time I laid eyes on him, he was walking uh, across the front of the school with a kind of Gibson Les Paul over his shoulder, and he's like golden hair. And I thought, oh, I've got to get to know that guy. And uh, he used to use the same rehearsal room, it was called the hole. It was mm-hmm. literally a hole, it was like a little kind of uh, a, a theatre, like a small drama theatre, but not like the main theatre, it was like a kind of rehearsal place for that. But we used to go and play in it, and uh, there was a, a Simon who used to play with a guy called Nick, who um, is strangely enough a person who works with a musician who works on the other side of the world right from where we are called Charles Haywood of This Is All mm-hmm. of This Heat who is now This Is Not This Heat <laughs> uh, and, and Nick and Simon used to play together uh, and me and Pat used to play together and we've just always Nick Doyne Dittmas that's his name how can I forget that so Nick Doyne Dittmas and uh, so Simon Morby is now in the wooden tops with me and uh, I did do a bit of time in the jazz butcher no that was actually after Wild Swans uh, but I left so school. you knew him before you were in the Wild Swans yeah, yeah. yeah. and then, and then I, I sort of he went to university in Oxford so I left home literally crack a bird shit of being 18 and went to Oxford and dust off his floor mm-hmm. uh, and we, we played in uh, Oxford so there was a kind of before radio had and all of that there was a kind of wave of new wave musicians uh-huh. uh, and we used to uh, play everywhere we could but we also um, because some places like Oxford you've got like people because it's a university town so you've got people that are students and then you've got the people that live in the town. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't a student, so I was more affiliated with the townies, but I had three meals waiting for me in the university as a guest of students. So I was like between the townies and the students. And this was the most incredible rock and roll pub I have ever known with the most amazing jukebox, uh, where brand new releases were on that. I mean, like when the first public image single came out, oh, yeah. the place was packed to hear the single on the, the, the jukebox, hmm. you know. Uh, 
like this first special single, you know, things like that. The first time I ever laid eyes on the ruts, I was in with Simon uh, from Wooden Tops. We were jamming on this bass line across the road in this boys' club, uh, kind of reggae, rock reggae thing with the drummer that we were working with. He was extremely talented, but never actually followed drums. He got into the film business, but he was so good, uh, Ross. And we, we had this bass line, it was fantastic. I was playing it, and Simon was playing the guitar at the top. We just played it for like an hour, we couldn't stop. Anyway, it was time to finish, so we locked up, we came out, and we walked across the road to this place called the Oranges and the Lemons. And there was a, a band already on stage playing the same bloody bass line that we'd just concocted in our room, and it was the Ruts. So we walked in and saw the very new Ruts at the Oranges and Lemons. Okay. And uh, I never, at that time, thought for one minute that the Ruts would be my friends years later and on the 21st December I'm actually doing a gig with the Wooden Tops, the Ruts and the Alabama 3 at Brixton Academy and we've known each other for years we're all kind of 90s skullduggers and um, so it's weird how these things go around you know um, yeah. and Simon yeah, the boy from school he's, he's been working for me for decades in the Wooden Tops now and Pat Fish is still my good friend right. and uh, so we all come from that but we've, we've all done different things but, but we've, we've just our paths have you know we did a gig with Pat Fish just the other day actually with the Lexington Wooden Tops there and he was supporting on his own so you did the Wild Swans and, and well and yeah, yeah well Wild Swans came about because um, I moved to London I realised I couldn't get any further in, in, in Oxford mm. so I moved to London uh, and I didn't know how to meet people in London so in the music press at that time there was like Enemy Melody Maker Sounds right. they've all gone Enemy is like there online but it's not the same yet. no uh, really Melody Maker had uh, ads and sounds they had ad sections in the back so I answered an audition and uh, I got the job, and uh, it was a band called The Upset, which had a really uh, a characterful singer who sounded like kind of like Al Green or an incredible soul singer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was kind of like a cross between mod and clash and a bit of scar and, and everything. So we're talking like 1970 and 1980, 1980, we're talking 1980. Um, and I was really young, I was like a boy in that band. Uh, and um, we were on tour supporting Dexter's Midnight Runners, who were number one with Gino, like within two weeks of getting mm-hmm. that job. And we toured forever supporting Dexter's. I have to say that like, Dexter's Midnight Runners was like the polar opposite of what I was into. I mean, I was really into like specials and Scar, mm-hmm. and I know there was a kind of connection between Dexter's and that, but it wasn't my thing. I loved reggae, and I really liked stoner music, you know, so Dexter's was the opposite of that. <laughs> uh, and on the very first night, I watched Dexter's, and I kind of thought the stage choreography was a bit much like... Right. I didn't like it. I was all too set up. The second night, I got it, and I watched them every single night, and I learned so much from them. I learned so much from Kevin Rowland, um, and 
and, and I have a very weird relationship with Kevin Rowland that's gone on for years where I keep making like these horrible mistakes that piss him off uh, <laughs> and I keep stealing his like favourite musicians and you know uh-huh. it's weird uh, but I actually really respect the guy hmm. uh, and um, his band were lovely and his band all nearly died en masse without Kevin Dale um, falling off my roof one night and, <laughs> and Keith <laughs> Allen I, I just uh, I just I just learned how you do it from watching them uh, and then that band amalgamated with uh, Dex Not Run as half of Dex's left and half of my band joined them and they f- they formed a band called The Bureau which did quite well for a while and but I was left out because there was all the from Dex's with it so there was no job for the young bassist I was out right. of the picture so I thought okay so I answered another ad and that ad was for the Teardrop Explodes uh, and I didn't know what it was I just went yeah. uh, and then um, a reward had, was just coming out and it was like a seriously exciting record yeah. and, uh, uh, and there, were, there was a lot of brilliant music in the very early 80s to be honest I think it was like right. a, a melting pot of so much and you know as we were saying earlier before we started this interview or, or I <laughs> was, uh, you know the people weren't so worried about losing money there mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it was more about um, it was more about new music and, and, and movement in music and there were so many different styles there was far less pigeonholes uh, it was it was a brilliant moment of funk and electronic and guitar music and and reggae influence it was just so much in that melting pot yeah uh, and you know all of those bands that came from like Cabaret Voltaire and the Human League I mean it's just a real like scattershot of musical ideas in that Rip Rick and Panic you know uh, just tons of it and so yeah I didn't get the job in the Teardrop Expose I might add uh, there's a little kind of reason why not which is they were a bit worried they couldn't get me into America. I was a bad boy, but um, <laughs> just to say that actually I've never had a problem going into America. Okay. Uh, and um, so uh, you know I could have joined, and I, you know, Julian has said it's a really good thing you didn't get in a band; it mm-hmm. destroyed you. But uh, my feeling is actually if I had got in that band, I would have been the bridge between you and all of those people that somehow thought that, that, that they were more important than you would right. I would have been your right hand man but anyway I'm glad it wasn't because I've got other things to do but yeah. I love him uh, and uh, you know Peter Freitas and all those people in Liverpool the bunny men just uh, uh, just uh, another another melting pot of stuff and yeah. Liverpool is extremely exciting dead or alive you know everyone's scared of people <laughs> and, uh, you know and the wildest ones were just another because Paul used to be in the original uh, two I suppose so um, and then there was like Benny Profane and there was the yeah every band from that time in Liverpool is like interconnected with members like swapping groups and mm. you know doing their own yeah. thing and being mm. involved with each other uh, to begin with so and then it's just really interesting to me that being a Londoner that you ended up as part of that scene as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I was quite sort of 
you know, the, the guys at, at um, Wild Swans did have their ideas, but I think I was quite a sort of a little energy ball, you know. Um, and uh, the, the one thing that they didn't like about my bass playing, which is quite interesting, is that I was a bit funky for them. Uh-huh. They kind of like that kind of... Like, There's that James Brown thing, thing coming back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I kind of, you know. Um, but, but the tours we did were great, and there was like a really funny one where it was just absolutely frozen everywhere. The Lake District, you know, was just all iced over, and we were done there. There was some really funny stuff going on there. Um, but, you know, it was the fact that my bass guitar got stolen at Glasgow Apollo that was the very reason that everything uh, that happened later in my life happened. Because uh, for the money that I got back, thanks to Bill Drummond being a cool cat. From the KLF at this point. In yeah, yeah, actually, he was going by my, yeah, also the, Zoo Records. Yeah, I used to live clap and stop calls, so they were, they were actually my nearest musical friends mm-hmm. so I used to be around there a lot helping stuff things in envelopes and mm-hmm. um, but uh, uh, he really helped me out and he actually watched me for a very long time he was the very first person to put the money into the wooden tops he, I signed my first publishing deal with him mm-hmm. he set me up without realising it because with that money for the stolen bass I did get a new bass but I also got a drum machine and a little Casio keyboard and started writing you know uh, Pat Fish and I we have a very strange parallel existence where we don't always know what each other are doing and mm-hmm. then we'll turn up to me and we're wearing the bloody same kind of clothes like what did you know I was going to turn up all right no right. you know it seems like that uh, we were both doing this technique where you get like a a stereo system with a cassette player and a beatbox and what you do is you you record something onto the cassette in the beatbox, you take the tape out, play it in the stereo system quite loudly, and then record your next part into the beatbox, swap the tape over and over, the hiss grows, but sure. you knock up the... This is before, you know, Porter Studio, which right. before Trial right. set. So uh, um, we both wrote our early songs that exact same way. Interesting. So you go from being a bass player for other folks to fronting your own band and... So you would have been playing with the Jazz Butcher, but what was it that made you decide to go your own way to form the Wooden Tops? I mean, what, did you just have great songs like plenty like lying around, and you just wanted to get those out, or what happened that made you want to form the Wooden Tops? I could say I just didn't want to play anybody else's shit anymore. Okay. But actually, it wasn't really that at all. Mm-hmm. It was just suddenly I had songs and, and then what am I going to do with them so <clears throat> the, the, the first thing that I did was was uh, get in touch with Simon who we discussed earlier mm-hmm. and he was at university in Bristol and I went down and see him and asked him if he would like to ah but yeah actually before that I did make some recordings on my own of my own stuff and um Here's the funny thing, is the manager of the band that I supported Dexys with, Seb Shelton, he used to play drums in Secret Affair, and he was just about to play drums in Dexys Midnight Runners. Uh, and he, you know, the, he, he kind of mentored me, you know. So Bill Drummond's watching me, 
but without realising it. And uh, Seb Shelton is actually literally mentoring me, making sure. I think he thought I had something with the like first recordings I made from the beatbox and hi-fi. And he listened to me like, hmm. so so he made sure that I had more facilities. So. He he borrowed he nabbed the uh, Porter studio that belonged to the secret affair bass player Dennis and lent it to me for a while, and then he went on holiday for like uh, I think maybe two weeks or something, and he invited me to go and live in his flat, look after his flat, and record. So I had the Porter studio, I had an amplifier, guitar, uh, and my drum machine. So I didn't leave the room for like two weeks I just like recorded all of this stuff and he came back from his holiday just like really looking forward to hearing what had done and there was tons so in that recording session was like uh, It Will Come by the Rubentops uh, Have You Seen The Lights Good Thing uh, uh, Everything Breaks uh, all, all these the songs on Giant uh, yeah debut. they all happened in that yeah film. They all wow. happened in a really primitive way, and so for five minutes there, he thought I was a solo artist, and we did, you know, um, I'd met Panny, uh, who does all our, uh, has been our kind of artist all of this time. Mm-hmm. So we actually did a video, uh, and uh, Seb tried to sell it, see if we get me a solo deal, um, but swiftly it sort of uh, he got me a studio session as well I went in and did some recordings and updated them a little bit but he uh, he sort of felt like actually I needed to uh, maybe form a band and do this so he went off and toured with Dexys that Common Eileen was like number one everywhere yeah uh, including America no, oh, nothing else right. by Dexys yeah, ever made like so that Just is come his on drum track yeah and I tell you he is one of the best pop drummers there mm. ever has been. And unlike every single person I know, he did not sit behind a kit and do smarty pants, Billy Cobham type, you know, exercises and uh, rudiments and all of that stuff. He sat with a cushion and a metronome, boom, 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 just to sharpen his eye and get his time well. He, he called himself a meat and potatoes boring drummer. And he used to really look up to Benny and wouldn't talk, say, oh, I could never do anything like that. Well, Benny used to stand up and dance and go, go nuts. And, and Seb really looked up to him. But Seb was on all of these like mega hits because he was like a human drum machine. And like if you listen to Come On Eileen, it actually speeds up and, and then it does this big drum roll and then it drops down to... Come on, Ali. Yeah, right. That is genius, right? I, I hate the record, right? I can't stand it. But, <laughs> but, this but, but, with you. but what he did there was phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, I remember when when I was in his flat and he was off on tour, uh, they had a, a BBC Live in concert thing. Dexes were on that BBC Live in concert. And I heard that bit in live, in the uh, uh, Come on, Ali live and it made me shout I was like alone I was like what it was just he took it right up and then dropped it back to the tempo I mean that is amazing skill you know mm. uh, and, and of course the whole band just came directly in on the one and sure. he really led that excitement and then drop so uh, you know another reason to really respect uh, Dex's um, yeah. but then 
Seb left Exxon's here to manage me. Mm-hmm. And it was still number one. You know, he met me on a he met me on a, a park bench in Soho where we would we would meet, have a chat and then go to Govindas and have some vegetarian food. And he basically said, oh, you know, how would you feel if I said to you I'm going to leave Dexter's Midnight Runners and manage you? Will you will you make it worth my while to do that? Mm-hmm. And I said, You're insane. <laughs> <laughs> you're absolutely a pure rocker. He said, Think about it. And so I thought about it for about 15 minutes and, and said, okay, let's do it. Yeah. So he said, but you know, you really, you, oh, but, but I'd gone away and then I'd found Simon and I borrowed Alice from, from Jazz Butcher. So she was in two bands now and found a drama pool and I'd actually started getting baby wooden tops together. And Seb was so impressed that I'd actually done that as he suggested. And so he, he quit Texas. He got a job at, um, Rough Trade, part-time job at Rough Trade. So he was managing us, and we were playing, you know, we'd been playing the tiniest gigs like art galleries, or busking, Villa like mm-hmm. Island fans, you know, they were a bit of an influence on me, I love them. Uh, I was very lucky when they first came over, uh, I was one of about four people that hung around with them all day and just went from location to location, helping mm-hmm. carry their stuff, listening to them playing, because they sounded a little bit like Baby Wootentops did. Yeah. You know, so yeah, there was a connection with yeah. the kind of US... The acoustic guitar, yeah. guitars, and, and the marimbas and, and stuff. Yeah, very yeah. exciting. So, um, yeah, I just felt like they were brothers, you know. And also, uh, yeah. So, um, uh, uh, also there was a, a Kiwi in there. It was like a New Zealand bass player. And uh, Benny had just joined the wooden tops and so he was interested because he was from New Zealand as well so mm-hmm. there was there was just all of this connection going on uh, and uh, yeah so um, um, so I had a manager you know and yeah. he was in the right place at the, t- the right time when, when the BBC wanted the S- Smiths to do another radio session and they called in uh, Sevars at the phone and they said, oh, are the Smiths available? And he said, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid they're not. They're, they're away. They can't do that day. Right. And in desperation, he said, have you got anything else for you? He said, well, there's this band. We got our first radio session. And, you know, that was the one that John Peel loved, that, that opened, opened the relationship with John Peel, who I never met. But he booked us so many times, and he just never stopped playing. And even when, you know, good thing was... A kind of like prime time radio pop. He was still playing us on his evening show. So, and, and in fact, just before he died, he was playing a white label of one of my house tracks. So I can say that he never stopped supporting us ever since that day. And what was that? Uh, do you recall what you did on that first session? Yeah, we did. Uh, we did well, well, well. Get it on. Uh, everything breaks and. Uh, Mm-hmm. There's another one. Oh, uh, possibly last. Yeah, last time, mm-hmm. because I had uh, I had an argument with the uh, with the um, producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to have no stuffing on the bass drum, so just comb, comb, comb. And he said that's going to sound awful, and I said no, that's what I wanted. <laughs> and so we we almost had a fist fight. You know? Okay, <laughs> but you knew what you wanted was the thing. Yeah, I wanted comb, comb. <laughs> So you've done the, the, the first Peel session. Is this why um, got Rough Trade interested in you guys? Or, yeah. Yeah. yeah um, 
Yeah, we, we, our first tour, coincidentally, was Julian Cope's comeback. And um, again, more lessons learned because he played some really big places with nobody in them. I mean, literally 30 people in a great place. I, I don't ask me why. I would have thought, you know, because the teardrops were huge, I would have thought they were a bit bad, but they were. Yeah. Somewhere, like Liverpool was, London was an amazing gig. Uh, and um, from both us, I think we played one of our best ever, ever gigs that gig. We just sort of, I just, we exploded that night. I was at Hammersmith Palais. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had played Hammersmith Palais before with Jasper Butcher. We supported Bauhaus there because there was all Northampton mates. So, you know, I knew what a full Hammersmith Palais was like. So when we went with Julian Cope, it was a full Hammersmith Palais. It was an incredibly exciting gig. So I just knew what to do, which is just all the stops out and go completely berserk. So I did. Uh, and it was one of the best with the tops gigs for a long, long time that was. And, you know, that's the one where, where Julian cut himself up with his his mic stand blood all over the place because he really had to pull it out of the bag after after what we did yeah. and to my mind he did so you know mm -hmm. um, but there's been a you know, number of people that have suddenly found were very difficult to follow and in fact it wasn't long after that where we actually we didn't have to no one had to worry about following us because we were headlining pretty quickly and so, so uh, Rough Trade signed you after the tour? They signed us, so uh, that was the question. Um, they signed us after after Julian Cope. I think because Julian took us out, uh, I think the Smiths were interested. Mm -hmm. So, funnily enough, the, the venue, the original Dingwalls has got quite a lot to do with this. It was a, a small bar, late night bar, where we started at the bottom of the building and ended up top of the building. Yeah, uh, but... Well, when we were first playing at Bosworth, we had like Julian would never go out to a thing like that, but he came and saw us to check us out and did was because obviously he knew me. Uh, and then he thought, right, I'm going to take Rollo and this wooden tops out. So we did. And then the next thing was the Smiths actually came to see us at Dingwalls. They took us out on tour. Wow. They threw us off the tour, being <laughs> way too dangerous. And, you know. Uh, and then after that, uh, everything but the girl took us out because the Smiths had taken us out. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I think probably everything but the girl, unless I'm forgetting something, probably the last tour support we ever did. And those were wonderful gigs as well, uh, every single one of those. Um, but we still didn't quite have our classic line. We were still, we were still kind of like different bass players coming in and out. And this is all happening really quickly, like in a year or something. And then Frank DeFratis joined us just after that tour, and Benny Staples joined us, and then suddenly that was it. That was like the the most of the eighties lineup was signed, sealed, and they solidified. Then yeah. okay, so so the Rough Trade signed you after all these tours. They signed us after um. They signed it, and I'm not going to ask that. Anyway, keep on. Uh, they, I can't remember when they signed us. I think they signed us after. Um, they, like signed us after they signed us after plenty. So they they must have signed us uh, probably after or around everything but the girl tour. I think it must have been around then. Okay. It's funny actually. 
can't really remember exactly when that was, and the first single for them was Move Me. So you put out Plenty by yourself? No, we put that out with um, Dave Balfe from Teardrop Explodes, had started a label called Food. So we were right. like the first, second release on Food Records, which is where uh, Blur yeah. came from. And, you know, they were they were much more successful than us. And they came from that, but right. um, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they were good. And Plenty, an amazing track. I mean, as debut singles go, that's hard to beat right there. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned. Thank you. Yeah, I preferred the B side actually. We, we locked Dave Balf out of the studio for the B side because um, we, we'd have enough of him. You know, he's yeah. banging on the door to get in and with him. You know, you have to understand there was like a lot of really interesting alternative labels like Factory. Mm-hmm. It's a classic one. I mean, everybody was fixated on Factory. Uh, and um, I think the idea for food that it would be that kind of a label uh, and we really weren't a suitable band for that because uh, we had kind of quite a lot of ideas of our own so like a real classic one mm-hmm. would be yeah yeah locking the producer out and then the other was that they wanted to have generic album bags so they wanted to use their in-house artists to, to like factory mm-hmm. to to so that there was a connection between all of the the covers. But we already had our own kind of thing going on where we were we were ensconced in an art warehouse in Battersea. Uh, the artist was my our very good friend who was letting us use the room. Um, we lived there. It was a scene. You know, we had our own scene. It was like kind of the the. the Battersea Andy Warhol scene, you know, it was, it was a very lively arts uh, place of activity where you would go upstairs to make a tea and uh, somebody would be lying in a loincloth on the ground having sand slowly pulled on their face whilst being filmed. Hello. And then you go to the kettle, you know, you just got used to all of those kind of things. And ironically, Jeff Blythe, the saxophonist from Death's Midnight he was a rooster out there as well because he was a friend of Panny's. And I met Panny because she was a photographer on the, uh, the Authentic London Sound He was photo- She was a photographer for Sound's uh, uh, news- uh, music paper taking pictures of the Upset Band and Dexter for Night Runners when we were on tour. That's when I met her. She was, you know, all Vivian Westwood and stuff. And we became friendly there. And that friendship meant that I was with her when she found that warehouse. And so I was part of a body of the people that went in and shelled out that warehouse and turned it into something, which is still there. She still lives there. Uh, And um, it's like a little private world. You go into these gates and... It's another world. So, you know, that's that's where where we had our own identity as far as visual visual uh, cover of our covers, uh, film, all sorts. We were already really into that. Um, so they they through Dave Bell, bless him, because I do like Dave. He he put like a really hard. A deadline on us when the, album, the the single cover had to be ready, mm-hmm. like like it was Saturday and he wanted it Monday morning. So uh, if you see the cover of 
plenty. You can see that it's made out of all of these hand-carved figures laid out with feathers and all kinds of things, photographed, and that's the colour. But actually, we had to be at the office early Monday morning to show them our goddamn cover, you know. Yes. So we turned up with the cover in a bin bag full of all the pieces, and we sat around for a bit. I remember the table there, and so let's have a look at the cover. Uh-huh. And Paddy just tipped the bin liner onto the floor, and just like all of this, like bolts of wood and bits and bobs and burnt pieces of wood, just like on the floor, <laughs> and they were like, what? And, and she said, give me a second, give me a second. And she assembled it. And she said, all we do is we photograph that. That's it. And they were like, oh, go on then. <laughs> <laughs> and you really maintained, yeah, I mean, you had your own uh, like singular aesthetic that a lot of bands didn't have like every like single like for some bands every single every album it's it's like a different uh you know different art direction but you guys through your whole career really maintained a kind of a singular uh, original aesthetic you know if you look at the covers of uh, Giant, the first record, or Wood of Tops on the Highway, the second record, even Granular Tales, the thing, you, the album you put out yeah. most recently. Yeah. There's an aesthetic to them. It's like you had this idea of what you wanted. Yeah. Very it's, it's, strong. It's not like the Grateful Dead, but it is a family, you know. Um, yeah. You know, we played, we played the. Um, it's, and, and some things remain the same. That's kind of quite funny about it. Like um, when we played the, the the gig in London the other day. Uh, it was really important that we took some photographs uh, and um, so the idea was that we were going to get there early on we're going to be ready to take a photograph we really need a photograph you know uh, of the band that's at this point in time it's very important I mean you know if you're if you're selling a band everybody wants up to take photographs like you would believe and um it's actually a nightmare keeping up with the demand for these photographs. It's, it's, but um, so it was like a really typical wooden tops scene from how it always has been, which is really, really late. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Panny had just got off an airplane from the Amazon, but she made it to the gig, but she forgot the camera. <laughs> that's most important part. That's yeah. how it's always been. Yeah. But it wouldn't talk. So, so, but we never had the time to take the picture, so it didn't really matter that she, she, she didn't have the camera. But she was there, and she was like, you know, oh, it's, it's, it's great. It's really, it's really, you know, it's a component. It's like almost a new band, really. And, and there she was. It was like we, the family, the the unity is really strong. And, uh, you know, next time there's an album cover, she will be doing it. And, you know, and, and I'll be asking her what she thinks mm-hmm. of, of the music, you know. And and she will be saying, you know, oh, I can't stand that. But, you know, it, would, <laughs> it, it hasn't changed, but the music has it's moved on. But the basic body of buddies is really strong. But yeah. you don't realise that until a lot of time has gone by. That, mm-hmm. that is so. Um, and uh, you know I still when I go to her warehouse I still feel really at home and I still feel like God, this is the most incredible place and you know I've lived there I've had my studio there for you know I've been so connected all ever since I moved to London really I've I've been really connected to that building and Mm -hmm. what goes on there 
and uh, you know, no matter what has happened, no matter what deviations from the apparent plan, it's still all there. So, so early days, you, you put out uh, a couple singles, uh, plenty, and then a couple other things uh, after that, and it all got kind of put together on the Well, Well, Well compilation, um, and that's almost like a almost like a, a debut album for you guys, um, if, just because it combines all the singles, and it's for me that's the first album. Yeah. Absolutely, totally the first album. For me, John is the second. Mm. Uh, and uh, it took, believe it or not, it took me quite a long time to like Giant because um, I thought that it was mixed for radio and I was, it just it was quite commercial sounding. Uh, but there is were, a leap in production from the early days of yeah, well to but I really giant. appreciate that yeah. it took me a long time you know I'm, I'm one of these people that has real kind of ideological shouting matches with anyone who's brought in to produce me because I, I know what I want but I can see that a lot of improvements from what I want were made mm-hmm. in that yeah, there's there's arrangement changes I wouldn't have come up with uh, there's some keyboard lines that maybe I played them but they were kind of encouraged I was you know, like a, an actor who's been directed who was being produced and and I might have fought tooth and nail and that's all part of it as well because of things that we did get away with uh, but um, there's a there's a fruity musicality to that album that I now fully appreciate. But the thing is, you see, I lived with the rough mixes of that album, and the rough mixes were were, were a little bit more like what we're talking about, like that collection of singles. It, it was a little closer to that. Uh-huh. But we we were like we locked Dave Balfe out of the studio. We were locked out. What well, I was locked out of the studio when they were doing the mixes. I was really not allowed. Uh, and uh, I really resented that. Uh, and but when I went in and listened to it, I, I was quite uh, initially blinded on the big speakers. They made sure they played it to me on the big speakers. By the way, they made sure that they they really um, pulled the wool over my eyes because when I didn't hear it on the, I was like, where's the, where's the fucking bass? There's no bass on it. What? what? You know, and that's true because for radio you have to you have to really uh, shape so that there isn't too much bass, so that the middle and the treble leaps out of the radio, and against all of the kind of you know kind of compression limiting and stuff, it makes it as loud as possible on the radio. Uh, and so I had a real problem. It's like they took all the meat out of it. For me. Yeah. So I wanted the meat back. Even speaking as a vegetarian, I wanted to meet back. So you like the production more on stuff that ended up on Well, Well, Well over a giant? I thought Well, Well was blinding. No, what was interesting about Well, Well, Well was um, um, uh, Andy Partridge was the um, producer of uh, Max AC. For for HTC, yeah. Uh, And he did a really good job on that. Mm -hmm. And he was brilliant to work with, and, and, and actually there was some kind of shenanigans that happened in the studio that no matter what happens in this world, I know that 
Andrew Partridge really covered up for some very bad behaviour uh, and I love him forever but Well 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 was, was actually the first time we worked with John Leckie uh, and, and Andy together but they'd done Dukes of Stratosphere together so um, uh, Andy brought John mm-hmm. uh, we really enjoyed that session Particularly when we went to Britannia Row and we did uh, we did the um, the B side or um, Colden side, but the record company weren't quite happy with the mixes. Uh, so uh, an idea to use a reggae producer called Godwin Logie came in, and so I checked out Godwin's like yes, right. but I didn't really know where we were going with it. But I like the idea of it. Because, uh, uh, you know, uh, well, 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 it's like the polar opposite of reggae. But, you know, I love reggae, so it sounds like a really interesting idea. Because <laughs> another person was Matt Professor, was possibly going to record well, well, well as well. Uh, and um, I went to that session with Godwin, it's just me and Godwin. I think Simon popped in as well. And we just sort of sat around, and Godwin would ask me, what did I think? And stuff. But he did something really different to what we'd done was he stripped it down he took he put mad amounts of treble on it, everything but he really pumped up that lindrum at the bottom there as a lindrum kick uh, and he made it really powerful uh, and it was kind of almost it, it was like the electric it went back to being the electro that it was on its original demo mm-hmm. uh, but the way he cranked up the guitars and, and put the screams in and everything, I thought it was just unbelievable. I could, I'm just sitting there going, my God. <laughs> I mean, it was just like the most kind of experimental pop I'd ever heard. Yeah. Uh, and um, banging, absolutely banging. So I, I, I thought that was, that was the most perfect mix we, we, we did for a long, long time. Okay. Uh, and, you know, I think Andy was a bit miffed you know, that that happened, they didn't use mix and blah, 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 blah. But that really, really was incredible. And um, and so when we, when we did Giant, I wanted it to be sort of more like that, but it actually was more like something else. Uh, yeah, as I say, I lived, with the, I lived with the rough mixes and they were pumping, you know. I mean, they were like a gig. They were really tight, but they were fucking pumping. And that's what got put in the background. I mean, it kind of is there. It still sounds quite beaty, but uh, yeah, it's just more melodic than, than brutal. I like Absolutely. Brutal. Yeah. 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 And well, 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 like every song on there is fantastic. Um, but for me, like Giant's a little more cohesive somehow. Um, it, it maybe flows more as an album, whereas Well, Well, Well does kind of feel, to my mind, like uh, some like a compilation. Which no bad thing, but just two different. Yeah, I mean, because that was our set for a very long time. I can't really see it like that. But you're right; they're different studios and they're different producers and stuff. Whereas, whereas Giant is the same studio, so Mm -hmm. everything is going through the same equipment, the same microphones, marvelous microphones, and it breaks my heart that that place isn't there anymore, the Roundhouse Studio, because everybody went there. I mean, the amount of people that we share, you know, we you. You'd meet there, mm-hmm. like, ranging from Nana Cherry, who I was really into, through to Mark Hamlin, through to uh, 
you know, even Bobby, when they started Primus Green, because I knew him from Mary Chain, you know, there they were there, and, mm -hmm. you know, it was just, um, it was, it was, it was a real, but Suicide was recorded there, and Suicide was uh, actually on a label called Bronze Records, and Jerry Bron, who ran Bronze Records, mm -hmm. uh, that was his studio, so okay. that, that for me that was like, oh yeah, it's good. Yeah. But, but you know, it was like where Motorhead recorded, and you right. had Heap and all of these people on that label. And it still had that kind of like seventies brown and kind of washed out orange decor. It really sort of was like a proper hard rock studio, but with all the great gear. And quite often you'd sort of feel like you'd open a cupboard door and like you know, asleep a lost Motorhead roadie, which is like. Dried, dried, dead, and dried out, and just like fall out of the cupboard. You know, it's like proper rock studio, but yeah. well maintained, and uh, there was a, a vibe about it. And it was right next to the Roundhouse, hmm. and I was always really obsessed with the Roundhouse because, uh, you know, people um, like the Doors. The only time they ever played in yeah. the UK was at the Roundhouse. And for those that don't know, the Roundhouse is a. a Pretty legendary London yeah. venue. Yeah. You know, as a teenager, I went down as a heavy metal case there. Uh, I think I went to all gone there once, and then, you know, great place. Yeah. Now, one of the tracks on Well, Well, Well called Steady, Steady that goes, this is a song about Jackie at the beginning. I always wondered if that was a true story. Yes, that was very true. It was, it was Andy. I mean, uh, I don't, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to get into trouble. Um, but basically, uh, yeah, we recorded everything from Move Me and we recorded everything for Do It Anyway, was the other one. Mm -hmm. But we had this other track that um, I did have some lyrics for it, and they were a kind of like driving at night type song, mm -hmm. you know, sort of didn't really mean anything, but it quite nice words, I can't really remember them now. But um, what it was, it was we had these three chords, and we repeated the three chords. Uh, and, but the drums rose and fall. The whole volume and velocity uh, rose and fell. So peaks and troughs. But Andy was conducting it. Yeah. So so we were just playing and recording, and he, you know, we were following his arm up, 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 down, 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 down. Then it would go wrong, and then it would go on, and then it would be up, and then we took it to like. A real crescendo, and but you know, Paul Hawkins drums, pre Benny, Paul Hawkins drums were amazing on that. Uh, and he was a very, very touchy feeder drummer with a good sense of time. He was a great backing vocalist, but there was something very musical about his drums. Uh, and um, so it was sitting there unfinished, and uh, actually, a cousin of my current girlfriend who I'd moved from Oxford to London with. He was dying, uh, he had cancer, and there was, you know, the typical story of misdiagnosis and way too late. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it really was a very horrible death, and yeah. it happened right in front of me and, and Annie and us and everything, and we mm -hmm. saw him. Um, and then, I'd never seen anybody die before, mm -hmm. so uh, it fucked me right up. And, but yeah. I had to get back to the studio, because we were on the last night, right. and everybody was... Uh, panicking about not getting this track finished and stuff so I got back to the studio which was actually in Ascot uh, it belonged to Rick Wakenham's manager and there was 
I can't remember the name. There was a famous band also. That they were all connected and they had money in the studio. And it pissed me off because, you know, it was basically a store. It was like a money money store, you know, all paintings and antiques and all, all of the investments that they've made were all on the walls in that place. Uh, and it made me a bit sick. And there was also this story of, like, their ex-wife was in this tiny little, like, it was almost like a shed on the side of the, the building. They split up, but she was still on the ground. But she was really nice. And I, I had a few conversations with her in the garden. And I felt really sorry for her because she was, like, really kind of... Sort of pushed in the kennel, you know, with the kids, mm. uh, and um, I didn't like at all the kind of atmosphere of this place. Anyway, so I got back all all, all torn up after what I did, but I had to do it, uh, and um, and so uh, everybody else was partying. I, I particularly remember they were having a great time, and. Uh, and you know, I sort of came back, and they were like, "Hey, yeah, how you doing?" Yeah, blah blah. blah. Yeah, so, uh, and I said, well, mm, "Just, I just, just watched someone die." Actually, like, what? Oh, and uh, you know, something bad went in my hand, and blah blah blah. blah. And then I got called into the studio, and it was a mic check. And I had my mic stand with my pieces of paper, with the lyrics that I was going to sing, and all my little dinosaurs and all my kind of adornments to my mic stand. And uh, and he said, uh, I sort of said, "Can you hear me? Can you hear me?" And they went, "Yeah, yeah." So do you do you want to do you want to do it? Uh, do do a test? And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I'll do a test." They ran the tape. Some things had gone on that track that were there when I last heard it, like particularly Simon's guitar track, which is just all kind of icy feedback, but it was through delays and stuff like that. And, and, and it just put, it really put the shits on me. And I don't know what happened. It was like my mouth was taken over by, by someone else. It, it wasn't me. It just, I just went did this thing I just improvised thinking that it was a uh, it was just a mic test wow and then it finished it was like a a moment of clarity actually uh, it, 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 it really is the opposite of that but it felt like a moment of clarity mm-hmm. uh, and then the tape finished and I sort of said my little bit which is just basically my inner feelings about what, what I felt about what I just witnessed and what had just happened right uh, and it was the truest most straight from the heart lyric I ever ever wrote but I didn't know I was writing it I, I was just gone I was gone and and um, it finished uh, and, and I literally sort of like chuckled and said said okay let's do it and I looked up and 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 there was this frantic activity going on in the, in the control room. So I don't know what the fuck. So I got out, went into the control room, and Andy was packing the tape in the box. And he said, you're not touching it. And I went, what? And he said, look at me, you fucker. And he showed me all his hairs, all his arms, were all standing on edge and on his neck. These, these lumps all over him. And he said, look what you've done to me. And I said, what? what? And he said, I'm hiding this tape 
And the engineer's going, yeah. <laughs> the psychic, yeah. You said, yeah, I'm hiding this tape. Because I know if you hear it, you rub it off and you're, you're not too. So that was it. That was all improvised then. Yeah. You had different lyrics for the song. Yeah, and they were in front of me and I was getting ready to sing them, but it just came out. And, right. uh, and, and then I suddenly had a kind of. Uh, uh, after that, a little bit later, I had like a couple of glasses of whiskey with the boys, and I had I had basically a kind of psych- psychotic episode, mm. and um, uh, and then you know I don't mind admitting it, but I kind of was sitting naked on the bottom of Andy's bed, sort of going, "I've done something terrible, I've done something terrible," and, going, oh, yeah, and uh, so he kind of you know made sure that. I was okay and yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, so well, well, well comes out, and I imagine it it did okay. It's it was a blinder. Yeah, Move Me was too. Um, I remember um, John Peel played Move Me, and and then he said he said yeah, it was the first time, and he said. Let me just say that all the resident teenagers here like that one at all. <laughs> and I remember him saying that. Um, and, uh, Always good with the quips. Yeah. Um, and I was really proud of that one. I could say I'm a bit... I was proud of them all, to be honest. But, but uh, yeah, the well, well, well one uh, was, 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 was a big one. Because I think, because I think that was... I know they're all quite sort of unique and yeah individual, and they, they all have something beauty and, and and kind of brave about them. Mm-hmm. But well, 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 was like a real clanger for being brave, I think. But then the one that was the last one before we did the giant that John Leckie did, uh, it will come. That was special for me in a in a different way because. Uh, Benny had just joined the band, so that was the first one that he, he recorded with us. Uh, but there was something about the way that all the Casios meshed together in the way that tape distorts. It's not like digital, it's different. Things morph together with tape. Mm-hmm. It, and, and then the way that we did the vocals and the way that it all became a little bit of a kind of melodic mush with the beat underneath it, that it had... Uh, dare I say it, a sort of spirituality about it, and particularly in the studio, there, 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 was, there was something was was I don't really know how to put it, but it was something about kind of dead soul. So there was, there was something, some kind of soul about it, mm-hmm. but not in not in a sense of you know like funk and soul. It was a different thing. It was a kind yeah. of melodic soul the way it all mashed together. And I was always really happy with that record, um, and I don't know if. Uh, you know, like for example, the manager. I don't. I think he felt like that. It was a. It could have been more this or that. But I just really, really loved it. I loved working with John, uh, and um, uh, and I particularly liked um, Plutonium Rock on the other side. Yeah. Um, great. Yeah. I mean, we played it better later, but I like that version. It's like the piano and just like all of the chaos. Um, so. With that record in mind, we went to go and do Giant, and it was another thing completely from that. Uh, and I think it was also the first time session musicians were brought in, uh, and um, 
you know, there was a little moment where it looked like I might be just about the only person from the wooden tops on it. How about that? Mm. And I wasn't having it. Uh, and so um, we used a Lindrum, which I really love Lindrum, but I, I hadn't learned to program it at that point in time. Um, so uh, the engineer program is really good. Uh, and we recorded the whole thing over the Lindrum, and then Benny came in later, and drum by drum played, you know, so actually it's quite interesting, because if you've got like a drum kit, you've probably got all the best microphones all around it, but actually the way that that was, was you'd have one drum with all the best, <laughs> all the best microphones around it, and he did it drum by drum, he didn't actually play the kit. It was programmed exactly as he would have played it, mm -hmm. but that he played it drum by drum over the top, but then played all the percussion over the top. So it was tighter than than like plenty was with an overhand DMX. So that was that was quite tight from the thing because you know, Paul could keep time, but Dave was like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so so uh, Giant was impeccably tight, mm. and the challenge for us to record our parts over that was really intense uh, and so um, you know I did the bass on it um, but I was given challenges too like I did manage to get my, my favourite bass on it but I was I was quite often asked to play basses that um, I hated like I really hated a Music Man bass because it was just like a great big plank of wood in the fingers and I just really hated it. Uh, and so, because he wanted, uh, you know, the producer wanted his guys to come in, he wanted his team in it. I, I was, I, I, I had to, I had to, uh, you know, because he'd had massive hits with Haircut 100 and things like that. So he did have a production team <laughs> and he was a hit maker and he was brought in to make hits. Uh, so, um, already, there's a problem area there, uh, and um, yeah, I had to, I had to play, give it time. I particularly remember on that really annoying music man bass, but I did it just to spite really because I really wanted to use my own bass, and and um, so it was a fight tooth and nail from beginning to the end of that of that album which is probably why it took me such a long time to really accept it but after Benny put his drums over the top of the Lindrum we kept, we kept some of the Lindrum kick actually but um, you know after after that it still sounded damn good on the, on the rough mixes as it said but in the rough mixes all of the session keyboards were back in the mix mm -hmm. but on the final thing you know they were bloody loud you know so. yeah yeah and um Let's talk about songwriting just uh, for a little bit. Like your lyrics have always been really great, and I wonder a little bit about like the inspiration. Is it is it you know just stories you come up with, or is it, it you take stuff from real life, or how, how do you get your inspiration for the lyrics? I don't know. I I never really had much confidence about my lyrics I think I'm thick as shit most of the time so I think that I think that they're quite conversational yeah. um, I don't think I'm poetic and I know many people who really are and, and I am not you know Pat Fisher well, or, or Paul Simpson you know they spent well, well Paul spent ages pouring over books and pulling ideas from 
books. And I just sort of do do what I feel really, and um, uh, try not to make it rhyme too much, uh, and um, and can't help it. They, they always just seem to rhyme, uh, and um, quite often uh, I'll come up with the local content later after jamming up and some idea I really like, uh, and then think I'm going to think of something to uh, to sing over it, and um, some of them. Have started with the lyric and chords first. Not not many. Mm-hmm. More of it is is actually um, uh, enjoying making a making a show, and then having to, trying to find a way to finish it. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite often starting maybe from the bass or, or from rhythms uh, or um, yeah, they're the main contenders. The occasional one, like well, 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 was me walking around the flat for ages, going ding, 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 ding. <laughs> uh, and, and uh, um, the move me was a real kind of like Casio keyboard and prophet synth thing, uh, and um, so it really is just the music that just fires the yeah synapses in your brain to create the lyrics. Yeah, basically. yeah. I mean, you'd laugh if you knew how big the editing okay. town is. There is so much stuff that. That actually may, maybe did have a vocal and a lyric, but still, you know, I just kind of it didn't make the grade for some reason. You know, it, it's still now I find things and I think, oh, why did you not finish that? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't. I, the only reason for that is because I thought I better digitize some of my cassettes and you know just you know, and that's when I'd like listen to them again and think, oh, that wasn't so bad. But most of the time, we just move on, forget about everything that happened before. You know, if it if it if it becomes an obsession and it gets finished, great. You know, then I'll then I'll have like a list of finished obsessions and then quite often pay them to the band and see what you know out of those which ones would they like to play. Um, and uh, you know, it's not all of them, but so there's a filter. There's a filter before they've heard them, and then there's a filter of them hearing them. Uh, and um, and sometimes it's just we need something new. What have you got? Uh, um, but you know, I discussed this many times uh, with Kyoko here. Is that quite often I, I would I would love it if someone else from the band came came at me with an obsession. You know, so what do you think it is? Mm-hmm. But they never do. So I don't. What is it? That, what is it that separates a a, 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 a musician from being a composing musician and not a composing musician I don't right. know I don't understand it I just think you're nuts you're not nuts okay hmm. well you know I mean there's some great lyrics on those those early uh, singles uh, like plenty amazing lyrics and uh, a giant just and I mean like everything breaks to me is one of the best songs ever written no that's just saying. getting your yeah. ass kicked out of the house yeah <laughs> gone, that's it, it's all over and it's all your fault uh, plenty is, is the desire for the desire to to make something of your life uh-huh. with where you are um, well, 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 strangely enough it's about being actually being shot and abort by what is going on in the world as the media presents it to you mm-hmm. uh, why, why, why? Obviously, it's about you know, kind of environment and global conflict, and um, you know, uh, yeah, 
It's just all different, different things. Sure, different aspirations. Yeah, yeah, I try not to repeat them. Some, sometimes you realise you are. You're like, oh, this is a bit like, yeah, I've been kicked out again. <laughs> yeah, but you know, just, just, just sort of trying to keep it varied is, is, is quite difficult, especially if you're. I mean, I'm not. I'm not like particularly. You know, you know, I'm kind of street educated. I don't have that kind of like. Mm-hmm. Upper grade of, of, of qualifications in English or, or whatever, and, and you know, I'm kind of quite um, quite maverick and um, never really studied any particular instrument or, uh, or, or anything to the point where I would get grade eight. In fact, I don't think I ever really got beyond grade two, to be honest, when I was a little kid. Um, but um, by ear, I learned by ear, I got by ear, but I quite like that, but I quite like that. I quite like what happens when my by ear meets somebody who is very technically uh, efficient and can 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 add or can like help elevate what I've done. Yeah, it's not the down on me. So, so the giant got made, and then the singles from that did really well. I mean, this was probably maybe the most successful period for the wooden tops was just after giant came out those initial singles i think i mean you probably were playing pretty big venues at that point and the singles were actually showing up in the charts at least in the uk um and in the states it got released in the states major record company cbs put it out and it's still readily available so it's must have done fairly well um, did you feel like okay it's all finally cracking off now it's you know we're, we're going to be like a, a really big band at this point or did you were you skeptical of that at all I, I, honestly I couldn't have been more busy uh-huh. Yeah, my eyes were falling out from the exhaustion from everything because I, I can't really you know because you know if you're, if you're a manager you look at it from the point of view, oh, okay, they're playing Brookston Academy now, but you've got your sights on Wembley Arena, whatever. Okay. Um, it doesn't really mean anything to me because it was just, you know, every single day was 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 busy. There was no time to sit on my ass. Uh, it, it, concerts, tours, worrying about the next one. So you really didn't have time to think about it. Yeah. No. Okay. No. Giant, tons of good reviews. Uh, Yeah, yeah, people love that album. Okay, that's it for part one. In part two, coming in a couple weeks, we do move on to talking about the live record that came out, Live Hypno Beat Live, uh, which many people consider their best album. It is a blinder. And of course, after that, the second proper studio album, which was Wooden Foot Cops on the Highway. And if you thought that was an odd title for a record, there's a great story behind it. I'm not going to spoil that now. You'll have to tune in to the next edition of Hidden in Plain Sight. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Hey, if you like our theme music, I got to tell you, it's by a band.
band that I'm in called Battersea. I am the guitarist and the singer of that band. And the theme song is called Hidden in Plain Sight as well, or Hips. Anyway, we are on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash Battersea, the band. Uh, and we've got links to our uh, Reverb Nation, Bandcamp, Twitter, etc. So hopefully you'll check us out if you like the music. If you don't, please don't hold it against us or the artists that we talk to on the show. We mainly do it for fun, but uh, we'd love to have more people check out our music. Okay, that's it for now. Babbled enough. Hope you're having a great day. And thanks so much again for listening to Hidden in Plain Sight. We'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks.